Namaskar. I'm going to talk about uh, what the battles are. That's what I'm going to talk about. What are the battles that, are, that the book deals with? It's not just Sanskrit as a language, but Sanskriti as a culture, as a civilization. And the overarching battle is to restore the adhikar in the hands of our own people. This adhikar to describe who we are, to study who we are uh, in our own way, to represent ourselves according to our own tradition. This adhikar was taken away during the colonial time. And even after independence, 70 years after independence, this adhikar has not been returned. Many people think that because we have political independence, we also have intellectual independence. We certainly have intellectual freedom legally, and we certainly have free press legally. But the discourse about Indology, Indian civilization, Sanskrit, Sanskriti, is still controlled by mechanisms outside India. And their students and people they have certified who've come back to India and occupied important positions. So the battle is between those who are inside the tradition, like us, all of us, who want to bring this adhikar back to our control versus the outsiders who have had this adhikar, who have taken this adhikar and who are in control. So the insiders are not a question of race or ethnicity or geographical location, but anyone who espouses the Vedic Shruti ideas, anyone who practices, who has Shraddha for the tradition, who has sadhana, whose swadharma is to uphold the tradition, anyone who sees this as his heritage. Those are insiders and anyone in the world is welcome to, us, uh, to accept this. Outsiders are those who reject the insider perspective, who mock at it, make fun of it, denigrate it, say it's irrational, primitive, backward, abusive, oppressive, political, like that. So this battle between insiders and outsiders has been going on, but the insiders are not aware of it. The insiders are not woken up. The insiders are still sleeping or sitting in isolated, very in, introverted, you know, looking at each other, not able to look out to see who's talking, why are they talking, how to talk back. The insiders are scared. Some insiders have no confidence. They are not competent to read what the outsiders are have saying because the outsiders are writing in very heavy English, which the insiders don't understand. Even the insiders who can understand English properly don't necessarily know all the idiom, all the, all the technical terms being used in Indology, all the references to Western thinkers, Western scholars, Western Siddhant is confusing the insiders. So the insiders, the traditional scholars of our own civilization, our Sanskriti, are alienated 
they are they are kind of excluded either by choice or by design so the battle for sanskrit is what i am starting to reverse this trend and bring the adhikar back and i call this swadeshi indology which means we have to replace the videshi indology with swadeshi indology that's a term if we can have it exported from india and become the center if we can do for pharmaceutical research and and export our knowledge research if we can do it for auto industry and so many other kind of industries then why can't we do it for sanskrit studies and indology why is it that sanskrit studies and indology are carried out the most prestigious centers are in harvard columbia chicago uh, you know uh, places like uh, uh, oxford and so on and why is it that the most prestigious journals where our scholars have to publish in order to be considered you know solid good scholars are controlled from the overseas and why is it that the most important conferences our scholars should go to are overseas so they are always looking for the, the mercy of grants and applying to this or that foreign agency to please give me grants so i can go there we are at the mercy of institutions located elsewhere for our own traditional scholars to certify and to prove their value this is very sad this is colonial we are our own indology is colonized how can we say we are a superpower and so on when we don't even control our own brand who we are our own history our own discussion of philosophy itihas somebody else doing it and teaching us so we used to be the producers of knowledge in places like nalanda and we used to teach the world now it has switched the guru has become the consumer we have become the consumer of knowledge others are producing and teaching us this is very strange so our young bright people are taken overseas they go and do this phd they come back and they get a professorship in sanskrit or indology or indian history or uh, social sciences or something like that they come back and then they propagate the western knowledge which they have learnt and they're always in touch with their uh, uh, their headquarters somewhere in the west i'm not against the west west is a wonderful civilization they have made many many contributions and they have done a lot of good work i am i am for western ideals free market r&d technology science i am all for that but when it comes to indology i think indology the center of the world of indology ought to belong here and although i am from the north and i spend a lot of my time in delhi when i four times a year i come to india i spend a lot of i also trip always make a tour of the south in every trip so and i come four times and by, but my original place is until i was 20 i lived in delhi and then i lived in for 45 years i lived in the in the us so although my collections are mainly been with the with delhi uh, i i concluded that this renaissance this revival of sanskrit and sanskriti uh, cannot be done in delhi delhi is too political and too difficult because uh, the moment you start talking like this there is a lot of hostility now of course ultimately we have to win delhi ultimately 
but I think that a base to start taking back Sanskriti has to be in the south where more talent is available, traditional scholars are available. I have given some talks in Bangalore and I found that the Karnataka Sanskrit University are very, very excited. They would like to help me. They would like to appoint some Sanskrit scholars and help me give traditional responses. Uh, yesterday morning at the Sanskrit University here in Chennai, again, the people there were very happy. They announced very publicly that I, my job should be to define the problems, to define the questions, the Purva Paksh of the prominent Western uh, Indologists, and their job is to supply the Uttara Paksha. So we can be in partnership. We can we can be in partnership, and I am hoping that as a result of these talks, this during this trip, we can create some kind of a team of uh, uh, you know uh, traditional scholars in in uh, in the south and maybe also from other places, but maybe mainly controlled or the the base can be somewhere here, and that's my first goal in in this battle is to create a what I call home team of traditional intellectuals and then I can coach them on what the Western Indology is saying and their job is to give responses so we can be a team. So, and the I want to apply the tradition of Purva Paksha of studying others and I can help them guide them as to where the material is give them the bibliography, the annotated bibliography, the reading list, guide them on how to read it and let them read it for themselves and come up with answers. That is their job. The second part of this is I need a, so the first home team is A, let's call it A, that's the traditional scholars. Then there is another B team which is intellectuals who are westernized but who are on our wavelength. These are people in media, these are various scholars, these are public intellectuals, writers, thinkers, people like that. So yesterday morning was Sanskrit University. That's where I hope to bring in, bring people into my A team, traditional scholars. And yesterday afternoon was IIT Madras, which would be a good fertile ground to find people on the B team. Because they are not necessarily traditional Sanskrit scholars, they are very uh, passionate about, about our heritage, they are anglicized, westernized, English speaking, articulate and we need those people. We need those people because that's how much of our society has become and is becoming more and more rapidly. So we need a multi-pronged attack. Then I think there is a need for a Team C. Team C are people who are very active in social media. They are not uh, intellectuals and scholars either traditional Sanskrit nor are they writers in English uh, but they can be very effective in spreading the knowledge, spreading the message, in publicizing, in public relations, publicity, uh, using social media. And the reason they are especially important is that the traditional media blocks us out. Traditional media don't talk about our view unless it is to criticize. So, we don't exist normally, this view does not exist unless it's time to attack it, then suddenly it becomes very prominent. And the only antidote we have to that uh, so far is our followers on social media do a very good job of responding. So that is my third team. So the three teams are, I need in the serious traditional scholars who can dig up all kind of good responses 
to what the Indology people are writing. Second is the westernized intellectuals who can write these ideas in English and spread it to policymakers, IAS, IFS people, NCRT people, HRD people, media people, and so on. Okay. Uh, and the C team, third one, is those who can take it to, who are not producers in Sanskrit or in any language in English or anything, but who can take the message in very simple uh, blogs and social media and Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. That is very important. The three-pronged attack, three levels are all very necessary. Now, what I want to achieve is have many, many readers. I want thousands of readers who read the book and who are quoting from the book because that is how we fight the battle. We don't fight the battle being emotional. We don't fight the battle hitting below the belt and personal insults and abuses. So I don't want it to turn into that. I want to keep the dignity of the discussion. I want to have respect for my opponents. I have nothing personal against my opponents. They're bright scholars. I call them the Charvakas of the 21st century. They are the 21st century Charvakas. I have a section in this book called Return of the Charvakas. So I call them Charvakas 2.0 because the original Charvakas uh, were also very bright in Sanskrit. These people also know a lot of, they are very intellectual, they are very hardworking when they come here. They are not lazy people, they run around. They are hardworking people and they deserve merit for that. Uh, like the original Charvakas, the new ones are also against the Vedas. They don't accept Shruti, Praman. They are against anything to do with sacredness. They are materialists, they are atheists. So they resemble the old Charvakas. But the new Charvakas are more powerful. They are connected with world power centers, lot of funding, lot of political institutional power, clout. They are connected with media on their side. That is the way I characterize the Indian left. They are Marxists, atheists, they are anti-Vedic, anti-Hindu, and they are a part of a global nexus against our civilization. And unlike the original Charvaks, they carry a lot of clout. They are articulate, very hard-working people, a uh, lot of money coming their way. So the new Charvaks are more dangerous than the old Charvaks. The new Charvaks are a combination of Westerners and their Indian students, Indian chelas, Indian followers. The Westerner guru, uh, Charvak, and the Indian student, Charvak, are a team. And we have not even studied this. We have not even understood this is what's going on. So my main contribution is to give you the map of the Kurukshetra, to tell you who's who, what is going on. Please wake up. Please do something. That is my job to motivate our traditional people who know a lot more than I do to get up and do something. And until now we are giving all these Padam Shri, Padam Bhushan awards to these uh, Charvaks we've been giving. And we've been, uh, Murthy has given them millions of dollars to, trans to take control over the future presentation of our heritage in a, in using the translation standards that these Charvaks are de defining. They are defining how to translate a certain word they are imposing their ideology of Aryan theory and this and that and Dalit, you know, the whole uh, this divisiveness using caste and whatnot. So they are bringing this human rights agenda. They are bringing these social sciences from the West. In other words, their Siddhanta, their Niti, they are bringing their kind of ideas in order to study Sanskrit 
and they are saying they want to champion and revive the study of Sanskrit, but it should be done in this new way, not the traditional way. So they are championing Sanskrit, no doubt, but our people are foolish, applauding them, thinking, wow, this guy is very great, he talks, he's, uh, he's championing. What our people are not doing is to read beneath the surface and figure out what exactly is their, their purpose and what exactly is their strategy for championing the Sanskrit. They are championing Sanskrit as something that should be devoid and deleted of the Paramarthika dimension, only Vivarika. That's a very typical materialist, leftist view that what matters in studying a culture is the uh, daily life, social life and so on. And the spiritual life is all hocus pocus according to them. It is full of oppression and it's very primitive and backward and uh, exploitation and whatnot. So, they, so that Paramarthika dimension of the Vedic should be sidelined. This is what they're saying. The oral tradition also should be sidelined because it is part of old Brahmin, uh, you know, just keeping it secret but not writing it down and, it, and oral cannot allow progress to happen uh, as long as it's oral then nothing new will come. So history according to them starts when writing comes uh, and therefore they can dismiss a large part of our history. They can dismiss it by saying we don't have records because oral nobody can prove what was done. Written only we can prove because there's evidence. So the oral is sort of useless as far as history is concerned. It's very convenient for them to do these things and we have to point it out. We have to give them with respect their right of speech and intellectual discourse. They have a right to do what they are doing but we have a right to respond. We are not stopping them. We are just waking up our people to respond. That's all so we can have good good, honest, uh, uh, you know, vibrant debates. That's what we want. So, besides removing the sacred, they are also introducing the exploitation as the purpose and motive of a lot of the texts and political hegemony, political domination. <coughs> they remove one thing which is sacred and in its place they add two things, uh, 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 social oppression and political dominance. So the lens, the context, because every interpretation requires context. The context of the original tradition is removed, which is sacredness, and the context of the new Charvaka is introduced, which is you know social oppression as the context through which it should be, this tradition should be studied, and political domination. So, so sacredness is removed and politics and, uh, and uh, social, uh, social sciences oppressive op study of oppression and human rights is introduced. This comprises according to me a big compromise. Such people should not be given the uh, representation of Shingeri Mutt which is what Shingeri almost did and I hope we can win the battle. We still don't know. Uh, such groups should not be handed millions of dollars to translate 500 volumes of our tradition into English and spread it in inexpensive, uh, you know, just blast the whole market with inexpensive editions, which is what Murthy wants to do with these people. So I have no right to, uh, no adhikar to stop other people from spending their money. I have no right, they, can, they have every adhikar, uh, all these parties I'm naming have every right to do what they're doing, but my right is also to speak and express my opinion. And this is a this is a marketplace of ideas. And if I can convince enough people, and hopefully they'll, they'll be open-minded, rather than getting angry at me, I'm just making a contribution in my own humble way by giving my analysis based on what I have found. And they can, after I've done all this, they can dismiss it and continue doing what they're doing, 
or they can compromise or they can reject what they were previously thinking of doing they could or he, they could say let's rethink what we are doing and so on so i am here these are the battles that uh, i am here to initiate through this book a final point i want to make is the government of india needs to be better informed because the government of india very busy in its agendas and its priorities which are very commendable those are very remarkable things has unfortunately been infiltrated some of the centers of indology have gotten indians hindus related to the government involved in representing their case in delhi so these guys are coming around talking because they are they have friends they have access they are coming and talking there is a discussion of a 50 million dollar government of india budget to help western indology please note this this is not official but people who are proudly lobbying are bragging that they'll get that yeah whether they get that remains to be seen but a lot of these things are done quietly until it's too late somehow suddenly something gets announced and then people sort of argue and fight and say why wasn't there public discussion and and then it starts creating a sort of strange uh, negative atmosphere so i would like if people have connections if people know somebody to at least sound the alarm that put the brakes on it like i was able to do with shingeri i went to the shankaracharya i was able to say please ultimately i respect you so much that whatever you do we will is fine but please give me a chance to finish my book or finish my report look at it and then you can decide at least have the other side of the story this book is now out and you should have important people in the government read it and call me call other side the other side and let's have a debate let's argue the pros and cons my case is very simple the argument being made by the other side is that india cannot do its own r&d in sanskrit because they don't have good people the best people are westerners and i'm saying that's unacceptable firstly i don't believe that's true i think that the use of english language has kind of handicapped our people and secondly they have not funded properly they're not able to create good careers for bright people uh, if these problems were resolved and if we upgraded the training of our people on international discourse and so on debates and so on you know there is no reason our very very bright sanskrit people would not be upgraded to match and exceed other people's capabilities if we can be so good in other fields why can't we be the best in the world in indology in sanskrit studies of of course we should be the best journals on in mandarin studies and china studies are in china not in united states and they are controlled by chinese editorial people the best journals in the world on japan studies are in japan french studies are in written in french not english arabic studies are in arabic persian studies are controlled in iran russian studies are in russia we are the only major civilization who who study is controlled elsewhere in on the terms of other people they have the adhikar to certify who's good and who's not good and we are so obliged and happy and uh, thankful to them for uh, studying us we, it's like gee thank you so much for uh, considering me so important and worth your while it's like when somebody asked uh, king george the 5th i i believe why you put why you taken the kohinoor according to one report he said 
the people of the empire should be very proud that I've chosen their diamond to wear on my head. Huh? That sort of thing. Like I'm a thief, I come to your house, steal all your art and your jewelry. And you should be very proud that this very important guy is now wearing your jewelry. It shows a sign of your good taste. And I'm honoring your jewelry. I'm praising it. This is the kind of inferiority complex our people have. And so the battle is a very multi-pronged, multifaceted battle. It's a very risky battle for me. I stick my neck out and I get hit every morning. You don't know. The first thing I look, I've stopped looking at email in the morning because I get hundred threats and whatnot. You're doing this and that, all kind of stuff coming to me. And I'm alone. I have to figure out what to do. But more and more young people are also helping me uh, deal with this kind of a thing. So it's a, it's a kind of a thankless job. It's a, it's a job that can completely deplete your pran. Uh, it has to be done. Somebody has to do it. Uh, if, if a person has career ambitions in some institutions, he may not want to do it because it's too controversial. I have no career ambitions. I, I did this, I'm doing this for the last 25 years full time. I don't want anything out of it. So nobody can fire me and nobody can hire me. I'm not for sale. So uh, that being the case, I can take this risk and that's what I, I'm trying to do. And uh, there, so I want to conclude by saying that uh, instead of the government giving money to Indology, the government I would like to appoint a commission for studying and monitoring the state of Indology in the world. China has a commission that every year produces a report on how China studies is taking place in different countries. They have, uh, they have a hundred plus Confucian institutes, Confucian institutes that study, that are named after Confucians, Confucius. But these are institutes that uh, are set up all over the world and academics and various places to promote Chinese idea of history, philosophy, ideology, language, all of that. So. Uh, like Alliance Francais does for French and then there's people doing it for Russian and whatnot. And uh, Saudis invest a lot in doing this for Arabic and so on. So China has these China these Confucian institutes uh, spreading their grand narrative, their civilizational ethos, their, their idea of Sanskriti very successfully. And one of the projects of the, these institutes is to produce an annual report that goes to the Chinese government and industry and so on, on who is doing what on China studies in the world. What are they doing? Who's funding them? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? They keep track. This is a monitoring. They're monitoring the state of China studies in the world. So at the very least, the Indian government should appoint a commission for the monitoring and evaluation of Indology in the world. This is what I would like to see happen. And rather than spending $50 million to give to those guys, uh, we should just spend $1 million and study that first. I mean, you don't, no industrialist enters an industry without first getting a report. You don't, you don't just go enter an airline or start a hotel business or start some business in pharmaceuticals. If it is something new that you don't understand, you first hire a McKinsey or somebody like that to do an industry report. So with the, with, instead of going and just dumping some money, $50 million and, and actually feeding the other side, uh, you know, we have to put a tiny amount of that money for the first few years 
and and understand the state of the art. And then then we can negotiate with confidence, with knowledge. Even if you want to give money, you give it later on uh, after you have acquired a lot of knowledge on what is going on. So you can sit down as an equal with a lot of knowledge and talk to them as an equal and not have to be begging. The answer I get often is that if we give them enough money, we will win them over. I call that feeding the crocodile. You feed the crocodile thinking he will become like a nice dog, you know, polite dog. Yeah. Lot of our people, I tell him, you're confusing. When the crocodile is showing his teeth, you think he wants to smile for your a selfie with you. Yeah? I mean, the, the crocodile's DNA is not going to change just because you keep feeding him. So the DNA of the Western Indology is not because they're bad people, please. They are rooted in a certain civilizational assumption, a certain civilizational history, a grand narrative that they are taught from childhood. This is their DNA, this is how they are. Like we have a certain Sanskriti, sanskars we have. Chinese have their sanskars and their ideas. Arabs have their, Persians have theirs, like that. So the Westerners have a certain Western sanskar, a certain Western ethos, values. And it is very natural when they come and study Indology, they project those ideas to us. They may be very polite and diplomatic. Some of them are very, very decent people. They are very generous people. All of them are not you know, the, the kind that I'm worried about. Some of them are very nice also. But some of them are double, you know. They play both roles. They'll be very, very nice. They'll come in a dhoti with a tilak and they'll do all these kind of things. But uh, some of them become as students at the feet of our gurus and teachers. But the teacher is not sophisticated enough to track what did he write when he went back. When he went back and he had to write, did he even acknowledge the teacher properly? Did he distort? And yesterday, the traditional Sanskrit scholars, after they heard me, some of them said things like, what we write in one or two sentences, they often take three, four pages to explain and they go on repeating the same thing and often get it wrong also. Yeah. Now, the correct protocol would be when a Westerner comes here and he picks the brain of a traditional pandit, a traditional scholar, often for days, weeks, months, correct protocol should be that as a courtesy, when he goes back and writes, before publishing the draft, he should send the draft back and say, is it correct? And give this person the right to put a rebuttal as at the end of his draft. So if he's written a 30-page paper, he should go back to the traditionalist and say, would you like to write five, six-page response, rebuttal, your Uttar Paksh, your Puru Paksh and Uttar Paksh, what I've written. And that whole thing should be published. That is never done. So our traditional people are too naive to even bother. They are too afraid to uh, pursue this matter and demand. So in a sense, they are being treated like native informants. Native informant is a very derogatory term. The anthropologists come to some poor villager to learn about that village so they can write about it. So they go to some village, talk to some poor women, and that's anthropology. The, anthropo the native informants, they are called, have no right to talk back, no mechanism to talk back, no uh, understanding that they should talk back. Not given the decency and dignity of who they are, uh, a, a kind of a Western stereotyping of who they are to fit the human rights machinery, the human rights international campaign against our civilization is being fed with all this stuff. So the pundits and the scholars who are so knowledgeable and the Westerners should be sitting at their feet. 
this is the other way around. This this scholar thinks he's obliged to that young fellow who who's got a lot of money. If that guy gives him a ticket to go overseas, he thinks he's really his life is made. So the economic asymmetry has been turned into an asymmetry of adhikar. We now have the money. Why are we dependent? I mean, this is very strange. We should be funding our people rather than funding foreign people. That's my battle for Sanskrit. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for reading it. I mean, this is what I like is serious intellectuals on our side taking the time, reading the whole thing. He's read it and pointed out many things to me, which I'm very happy. So uh, the, the point about uh, this claim that he mentioned by, our, by the Western Indologists that uh, Sanskrit holds a deep structures of oppression which the Europeans discovered and they said, ah, we can use it and they started becoming oppressive. Now, there's a paper called Deep Orientalism. If you search, read that paper written some 20 years ago or whatever. Now, my view is they have a right to theorize, but it would have been an honest thing for somebody writing that to come to the Sanskrit University here, to come to the vice chancellors and on their face present it and say, this is my thesis, please give me a response, correct? Not to quietly just publish it all over the world and teaches, uh, teach people in Colombia and Chicago about these ideas and then these ideas keep spreading and it takes 20 years and a man like me to bring it to the attention of the, uh, of the traditionalists. So traditionalists should not be in the dark. Now, when I've mentioned this to Sheldon Pollock, who's the guy who wrote this, he made a good argument. He said, I asked him, I said, why is it that I'm the first person who's done a very thorough analysis and written about your work? Important scholar should be critiqued. It's a tradition. And how come nobody has done it? He gave a very correct answer. He said, I've never stopped them. They're welcome to. Why didn't they do it? I don't know. Why didn't they do it? He's correct. I said that your students are writing hagiographies, praising you, prashastis and all that. And all Indian, all kind of authorities giving you awards. Nobody did a critique to kind of balance out the discussion. And he made an absolutely correct statement that he's never stopped anybody. People should do it. They're welcome to doing it. If they do it in a good, friendly tone and respect and all that, there's no problem. So the blame also goes to us in the sense that uh, why is it that 20 years have gone by with this article and many other articles have written, another one on the death of Sanskrit, a very classical article, why it has been dead for 1000 years, Hindu kings were responsible for killing it, no responsibility to Mughals and Islamic invasion, very clear. Now why is it that for so long nobody from our side even bothered to take note of it and write a rebuttal? That's, it. That's our problem. Are we scared? Are we, are we not able to read English? Whatever the issue is, we ought to be honest and address it. We ought to unblock the intellectual capacity of our people, which is very large. We have to unblock that, polish it up, clean up whatever the uh, problems are and turn them loose as a very serious intellectual force, not emotional. There is a whole thesis they have that Ramayan became pop was not popular in the public, public. It was a very sort of small scale uh, tradition until the Turks invaded thousand years ago. 
and then Hindu kings suddenly wanted to popularize Ramayana as rabble rousing against the Muslims. And the way to rabble rouse against the Muslims was a narrative in which the Hindu king was divine like Ram and the foreign invader was Ravana, the Rakshas. So the demonic other and the divine self of king was the way the Ramayana was developed for this particular anti-Muslim use. Now this is so clearly written. It's written on the occasion of this Babri Masjid Ayodhya thing again by the same authors. Refreshing their mem reader's memory that look I told you so and this is why they're doing it. Now okay everyone's entitled to their view. I do not want to stop this or have burned books you know I do not want that please don't they have a right <coughs> but we should have responded at intellectual conferences we should have written papers rebuttaling very strong rebuttals we should have done that so that is all I'm trying to do I'm trying to level the playing field of intellectual discourse by asking our people to respond in a very dignified intellectual academic style with facts I mean, you can give facts. I have given an appendix showing that long before the Turkish invasion, there were Ram temples, archaeological sites, you can see. There's evidence there's a Ram Leela. Ramayan and its story had been exported to Thailand and, and uh, you know, Cambodia, Angkor Wat, all these kind of things. So to say that it became popular as a reaction to ra for rabble rousing uh, when the uh, Turks came is factually wrong. I mean, there's nothing emotional about it. No insult being given. Just saying that this is wrong scholarship. This scholarship has enough doubts. Even if you don't want to call it wrong, there is, a, there is counter evidence also. It, the evidence is not all one-sided. That's the kind of style I'm using. So I, I, I thank you uh, for, and I thank you, sir, for your wonderful remarks. And maybe we can take questions. Yeah, just one intervention, because he did mention about um, Ramayan. And of course, in his book, he has written extensively the evidence which is against the theory of um, Ramayana coming into uh, fort, coming into prominence after the Turkish invasion. Um, I don't know how many of you had uh, uh, noted a news item which came in the last three, four days. Um, an archaeologist who was with Archaeological Survey of India for many years he has given a statement saying that when he did the work at the uh, at the uh, field in excavation, he found enough evidence pillars uh, for a ram t for a temple there in Ayodhya. How many newspapers have carried it? 